Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of Sports Speak. Hope you're doing well. I'm Eddie Kalecki. I'm Tim Moore. Well, the MLB trade deadline in the books, it was really one for the ages. A lot went down, especially in those final few minutes on Monday. We'll get to all of that and also going to talk some more NFL, get back to our Giants versus Eagles debate, because there is football tonight, the Hall of Fame game between the Jaguars and the Raiders. So the NFL season unofficially begins tonight in Canton, but we'll get back to it with the Giants and Eagles, look at their schedules and determine what record these two teams will finish with. But Tim, let's start with the deadline and I'll start with this. I'm going to count down my top five teams I saw from this deadline in terms of what they did and the moves they made. Number one, I don't think there's much question. The San Diego Padres, Juan Soto, Josh Bell. How about Brandon Drury hitting a grand slam in his first at bat as a Padre? You add Josh Hader to that pen. They gave up a lot, but not too, too much. And I really liked how with the Hader trade, they didn't give up any key prospects. They gave up some major leaguers, but were ultimately able to save the prospects to get Soto and Bell. So I got the Padres at one. Number two, I like the Houston Astros, the moves they made. Trey Mancini adding him in, Christian Vasquez as a catcher, two really strong moves for a Houston team that had very few holes to fill, but of course they're probably going to be getting down with the Yankees in October, and that really bolsters their opportunity, especially since they brought in two players who are familiar with the Yankees and have both played in the AL East for five-plus years. Third, If the Yankees had not made that Jordan Montgomery trade, they would be number three in my mind. But I'm going to put the Twins at three only because they brought in two really solid starting pitchers. I really like Tyler Maley. And you get Jorge Lopez from the Orioles, one of the best closers in baseball this year, an all-star, a seasoned vet. So I put Minnesota at three. The Yankees, I'm still going to put them at four because they made changes and made positive changes and fixed the things they needed to fix. Joey Gallo is gone. Benintendi is in. You added efforts to that bullpen. Maybe Harrison Bader will be an impact player in September. Overall, I like the moves the Yankees made. Aside from that Montgomery deal, which was a little weird, kind of hurt their starting pitching depth. And number five. I like the St. Louis Cardinals, very underrated. Their offense is good, but they were able to hold on to the bulk of their young talent because this is a Cardinals team that's going to be good for a long time. They want to win that NL Central. It's very possible only one team from the Central makes the postseason this year. They want to be the ones. And adding Jordan Montgomery, Jose Quintana, Chris Stratton, all three of them who I believe have at least some experience pitching in the postseason really lengthens their starting rotation, a rotation that was really lacking. And when you look at the National League between the Mets having DeGrom and Scherzer, the Dodgers, the Padres, the Braves, there are loaded starting rotations. The Cardinals needed to rival that to be contenders, and I think they really helped their chances. So that's my top five. A couple of teams that I'll just add that maybe didn't do so well. I didn't really understand what the Red Sox were doing. They bought some, they sold some, they were a little topsy-turvy. As a Mets fan, I would have liked a little bit more, but in the end, I think they were a little frazzled by what they did last year. Of course, with Javier Baez, that did not work out. And all four of the moves that they made, I think, put moved them in a positive direction. Their bench is much better than it was two weeks ago. I know Michael Givens got knocked around in his first outing yesterday, but I think he'll be an impact player. They also have Trevor May back. And hey, Jacob DeGrom is healthy. Braves, I'm a little surprised. They didn't do that much. They brought in Robbie Grossman, but didn't add much pitching. They're really relying on this team from the World Series last year, but they have more injuries again, just like they did last season. So that's where I stand with that. Tim, over to you. You know, what are some of your takeaways from this trade deadline? Some teams that really hit it big and other teams that simply didn't do enough. 
Well, from a personal standpoint, I'll first start like this. The New York Yankees are simply a disappointing franchise. And I know that's going to say whatever, but listen, I, I can't stand it. I can't stand it. I'm tired about hearing about the money. I'm tired about hearing about cap. The Yankees have the best record in the American League, and this team is worthy of being capable of making a deadline move to win a World Series. You want to talk about money, shelling out in terms of not being realistic. I'm tired of hearing that Juan Soto was unrealistic. Considering what San Diego gave up for Juan Soto, the Yankees could have turned around and gave away. For Juan Soto, I would have been more than willing to give away Anthony Volpe. I would have been more than willing to give away Jason Dominguez. I would have been more than willing to even give them another top five prospect on top of that if it meant getting one of baseball's future and already active stars. Juan Soto is only 23. And I understand the component of pay, but look at, look at San Diego. Think about this for a second. They're going to have to pay Juan Soto, right? They already have paid Manny Machado. They have paid Fernando Tatis, who still hasn't played a game this year, might I add. Even though he was my MVP prediction, that team still doesn't have their shortstop and can only get better. Of course, they've paid pitching. They've paid ways around. And listen, for San Diego, I'll laugh in this regard, of course, to get Josh Bell along the, uh, along the trade. The only thing I hope for the Padres is that it doesn't turn out like it did the last three times. I always think about the San Diego Padres super team. Remember going all the way back to when they brought in the Uptons and Matt Kemp, or even most recently two years ago where they brought in a, I mean, absolutely what should have been dominant pitching staff. You had you Darvish, and I believe even then they still traded for Blake Snell right after the Cy Young. So you look at that team and all the capabilities, of course, bringing Manny Machado, you thought that team was capable of winning a World Series, and unfortunately unfortunately didn't live up to the expectations. And while you still have some pieces there, I still think this team is going to compete with the Dodgers. I think the story now is going to be who's better, the Dodgers or simply the Padres. And on paper, of course, I think it's very easy to argue the Padres. But the one thing the Dodgers still always have over the Padres is going to be experience. And I'm very intrigued, uh, intrigued on what the Dodgers can do because the Dodgers really went under the radar this deadline. They their, their biggest move, in my opinion, was trading for Joey Gallo, which isn't really much of a move at all. And I... That overall is going to be interesting. I go to my top five. I agree with you. San Diego, easily number one. I, I don't think there's a question without a doubt. You got an above 300 hitting first baseman who can mix power and switch hit, and you turn around and get a once in a generation player, Juan Soto. That is a done, done deal. And unfortunately for the Nationals, and if you're a Nationals fan, I'd be really angry considering what your team just was two, three seasons ago, and now you have completely fallen apart. Uh, number two, I also agree. I have the Houston Astros. Um, a little bit disappointed though that they didn't get Wilson Gutierrez. I really thought that they, they were going to make a deal with the Cubs, but the Cubs also, you talk about awkward, just like Boston, opted to keep a lot of players like Ian Happ as well, you know, in-house, but then trade away a couple of their bullpen pieces. To me, their process of elimination doesn't make sense, but it, it's interesting because I feel like the Cubs are in a rebuild and would have made sense too. Uh, number three, I I'm actually going to go with the team you didn't bring in your top five, which I'm surprised. I'm going to go with the Seattle Mariners. I think they proved the point yesterday, turning around, getting Luis Castillo, uh, dominating the New York Yankees, and turning around and slowly making, you know, great steps. Again, the Seattle Mariners aren't 
going to win a World Series now. Let's be honest. But they're every year they're slowly but steadily getting better. And even right now, I know they have injuries. So, for example, the J-Rod, and they're going to have to turn around and, and slowly uh, find a little bit more of an offensive presence consistently. But I really love that move for Seattle. I feel they not only solidified themselves a pitching ace, but the fact that they also found themselves a little bit more depth that they can work with. Not Again, not making them a title contender, but it's a good first step really for the future and a big thing for them trying to aim towards a wild card run because let's be honest, they're not catching Houston in that AL West uh, with the, the way things are all working out. Uh, number four, it's a little bit tough for me because I – you see, I feel like really, I want to say the Yankees, and but I really can't. I'll go up to Cardinals, who was your number five, because overall, Jordan Montgomery, big addition for them. And the big thing as well, Eddie, is this, is that one thing the Cardinals do so well, and I don't think people ever realize this. Of course, yeah, they've had Adam Wayne right there for years, but this team just brings in a lot of, I don't want to say top star pitching because their offense has a bunch of top stars. You have Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado, and, and so on, where this team has the power in the bats. But the big thing this rotation has, for the most part, and what's led the Cardinals to success in past seasons, remember when they went on all these playoff runs, is because of the fact that they just have solid complimentary starting pitching. Yeah, they don't have exactly that ace that's going to turn around and give you, you know, a mid one or two ERA like Jacob DeGrom does, but you have guys that are mid to low three ERAs. And that's the big thing I loved about Jordan Montgomery that I that I really argued with, Eddie, uh, with Raheel about. Listen, I know we turn around and got Frankie Montas, and he's having a great year, you know, yet again, and really backing up for what was a uh, not a Cy Young run last year, but at least being in the conversation but my thing is, Jordan Montgomery throughout his entire career, with the exception of the pandemic season and the season before when he was injured, he is always a mid-three ERA guy. You can rely on Jordan Montgomery to be consistent. And I'd even argue, compared to Jameson Tyone or even Garrett Cole, I could trust that Jordan Montgomery would have the capability of at least doing something decent in a playoff game for the New York Yankees. Not saying that, you know, he's going to dominate, but he can give you complimentary baseball. So I think the Cardinals really got themselves a solid pitcher, and I'm sure we'll see him in the postseason at some point. And oh, by the way, just like how the Yankees missed out on Luis Castillo and they're feeling a little bit bitter about that. They're going to feel real bitter when Jordan Montgomery is likely to start the series, if I'm not mistaken, tomorrow uh, for St. Louis. So that will be interesting as well. Um, and the last one, I'll go with the Yankees just because they still made moves. But again, needle mover, needle mover. I'm going to use that term. I know that term's used a lot in wrestling. But for the Yankees, Andrew Benatendi, listen, very solid player. Do not get me wrong. But in my opinion, he's a fluke 300 hitter. He has some good bat on ball, but if you look throughout his career, mid-270, 260, or you go through the slump when he first joined Kansas City, I don't feel like Andrew Benatendi's a 300 hitter. And the big thing is, he doesn't flash power. And I'm not saying the Yankees need power, but 
The Yankees have survived around big swings, big at-bats. While Andrew Benatendi works walks, which is great, he only has one hit still since joining the New York Yankees. I believe he's like one for 17, which is absolutely horrendous. And while sure he's worked eight, nine walks, what does that matter when you're not getting consistent production around? The guys like DJ LeMahieu, what makes them so good is that they can work counts, work walks, and still hit for complimentary power, but get on base. That's why I love guys like Isaiah Connor Falefa. But you can't have three IKFs in a batting lineup for the New York Yankees and not at least bat them in order to get Brunners on base. Otherwise, that would make sense. But the Yankees like to spread people around the lineup. And Andrew Benatendi, if you would have said two, three seasons ago, would have been a big deadline piece. The answer is no, because the fact of the matter is Andrew Benatetti isn't Juan Soto. He isn't Shohei Otani either, which is someone I wished New York Yankees were able to fully pursue. Unfortunately for L.A., that was not the case. But in the Yankees turn around and get Motas. Motas isn't an ace. Let's be honest, he's not better than Garrett Cole. And Garrett Cole hasn't been good of late either, and you can't trust him in the postseason. And then the, the, the Montgomery trade doesn't make sense. And yeah, the Yankees trade away Joey Gallo. That's great. But I need an outfielder that can start every day over Aaron Hicks. Every day. Aaron Hicks isn't the answer. I would absolutely have loved, loved an outfield that had Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton, Andrew Benatendi, and then you complement a Shohei Otani into the lineup. I would have even loved if they turned around and got a first baseman. Why did they try to go for Josh Bell rather than having San Diego turn around and get both Soto and Bell? You can utilize Anthony Rizzo at the H, have Bell play first, and then you flip-flop between them and Stanton. But the Yankees made under-the-radar moves while they're high-profile for this season. I don't see any of them being World Series pieces. That's the fact of the matter, and they haven't showed me anything that's changed momentum. The Yankees have played horrible since the All-Star break. And again, will they win a World Series? We'll see. Right now, they still have the best record in AL, but they are not the best team in baseball. And MLB, by the way, uh, released power rankings, Eddie. They have the Yankees number one, the Dodgers number two. I have no idea how you could say the New York Yankees are number one, considering the fact they lost series to the Mets. They turned around. They can't beat the Houston Astros. They have the Astros at three. The Astros, in my opinion, are the best team in the American League. And for the moment, until the Padres fully come to life, the Dodgers are the best team in baseball. The Yankees are number three, if not number four, behind the Mets. Yeah, I'm 100% with you on that. And a couple of notes I wanted to add from what you said. First of all, with the Dodgers. Now, I feel like the Dodgers were hesitant this year because the trade deadline usually doesn't help them that much, with the exception of Trey Turner, who they ended up signing long-term. Of course, Max Scherzer couldn't even pitch in the biggest game of the season for them last year. Manny Machado was decent when they got him as a rental, but he wasn't a huge difference maker. They weren't able to keep him. The Dodgers are more of a winter meetings team. They are more of making their moves in December and January and setting themselves up for the full 162 games. So the fact that they only went for Joey Gallo doesn't really concern me. And like you said, they're the best team in baseball right now. They've won 23 of their last 28 games. They're calling up someone literally with the last name Outman, and he's not making outs. He's got like he was started his career five for seven. They're, 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 they've got everything covered right now. The big question is, can they carry that into the postseason? Now, with the Padres, 
I will say, I think this is different from teams past with them. Number one, you finally have a capable manager in San Diego. Bob Melvin has taken scrap heap teams in Oakland to 95, 100 wins and on decent postseason runs. I know they haven't gotten too deep in the postseason before, but he also did not have Juan Soto, Fernando Tatis Jr. and Manny Machado in the same lineup. He had Matt Chapman and Matt Olson. This is a massive difference, and you've got a great manager in that And you talked about the experience level that the Dodgers have. Well, the Padres just brought in a lot of players with postseason experience. Josh Bell's been around for a while. Early in his career, the Pittsburgh made a couple of playoff runs. Juan Soto won a World Series three years ago. Josh Hader, while he hasn't been great in the playoffs before, has postseason experience in those high leverage situations. So I think that complementing some other experience in the roster, like Will Myers, Manny Machado, Fernando Tatis Jr. Let's not forget the Padres two years ago. I know it was the 60-game season, but they made a deep playoff run and really challenged the Dodgers that year in the postseason. I know that year's an outlier, but still it was only two years ago. And they have a better pitching staff now. I think this might be the year it all comes together. The problem for them, though, is that the way the postseason is right now, they'd have to play a three-game series in Atlanta. And I don't know if you'd be able to win that. So as good as the Padres are, they're in the worst possible situation playoff-wise. But I want to talk a little more about the Yankees and, you know, I, I, something I like that the Mets have done this year is how they structure their lineup. And I still don't like the way Aaron Boone structures the Yankees lineup. The Mets have the bottom and the top, obviously having a DH and having a nine man order where nine goes right to one helps a lot now in the national league, but Buck Showalter has done a great job setting up the on-base guys together. He bats Jeff McNeil low in the order, Luis Guillorme. Even Tomas Nito does pretty well with getting on base. You loop it up to Nimmo and Marte. You can string something together at one and two, and then you have your two power hitters, Lindor and Alonso, right there to clear the bases. That's a great setup. The Yankees, I feel, are very weird. I still don't like the philosophy of your power hitter, your best power hitter, batting second in the order. I think that's idiotic. The power hitter should be batting third and fourth. Forget about that. The Yankees, I believe it was two games ago. Yesterday, I know a lot of people were mad about the lineup. But two days ago, Anthony Rizzo was leading off for the New York Yankees. In what world should a 220 hitter, not named Carlos Santana, because, of course, you remember when Carlos Santana was on the Indians, he turned around and had a very high walk rate, which was a big reason why he was one of the most unorthodox uh, leadoff hitters in baseball. But... There is no reason, no reason Anthony Rizzo should be leading off the game for the New York Yankees. Not saying that he shouldn't be high in the lineup, but there is no reason when you have a DJ LeMahieu in the lineup. I'd even argue Claybor Torres, even though he's he's a little bit cold late, batting around a 250. At least he's more bad on ball than Anthony Rizzo has been. That's like putting Giancarlo Stanton up in the leadoff spot. It makes absolutely no sense to me at all in what Aaron Boone does and what he thinks. And yeah, I'm okay for mixing up the lineup, but I I also want to put it like this, Eddie. It goes back to a point of coaching philosophy. Buck Showalter likes playing the statistics and likes setting up himself for the top of the lineup. Hence why you get to see a lot of on-base guys towards the bottom. My, if I were to draw a dream lineup for the New York Yankees, okay, I personally think You want your guys to get on base the most up on top of that lineup. And it's as simple as that. And I'm a big advocate for batting average. I talk about it all the time here on Sports Speak. If I were to draw a lineup up for the New York Yankees, listen, I I personally don't mind Aaron Judge being in the two-hole. Would I bat him in the two-hole? Probably not. But it's more of the capability of him drawing a walk. 
DJ LeMahieu will always, in my opinion, be the Yankees' leadoff hitter. I want no one else different up in that spot. I know he's had his struggles, but when you see when he gets runners in scoring position from the bottom half of the lineup going, DJ gets going, and his bat of late especially, I really do think he can get back to 300. He'd be my one. Number two, this is where I would put Andrew Benatendi. You want to talk about the Yankees splitting righty-lefties up? Andrew Benatendi has a walk-drawing capability. That's the one perk. While he hasn't hit well in the past, granted this season statistics, I give him that opportunity in the two-hole. Then that's where I'd go to Aaron Judge. Put him in the three spot. You get runners on first and second. Big swing capability. You want to back it up one more? Let's go to Giancarlo Stanton when he's healthy. Put him in a cleanup spot. Then we break it up. Go to Anthony Rizzo in the five. Now, how do you break up the rest of the lineup? It's simple. You could turn around. You could put Jose Trevino in the sixth spot if that's what you want to do. Or if you want to break up the lefty, you could put Aaron Hicks there. At some point in seven, eight, nine, though, you want your on-base guys like Trevino, like Ike. IKF, in my opinion, I like to see IKF higher up in the lineup around that six or the seven spot. But I also don't mind Isaiah Kiner-Falefa batting in the nine hole because it creates an opportunity for the Yankees to turn back to the top of the order considering he's so good being bat on ball. The big thing is, and this goes back to Buck, your point about Buck Showalter. Buck Showalter is so good at developing lineups because there's always a threat in his lineup, if that makes sense. There's always opportunity. There's no easy out. And I'm not saying that there's, for example, the Yankees compared to the, the Mets have big swing opportunities for most of that lineup, but that doesn't make them a threat one through nine. What makes the Mets a threat one through nine is, oh, well, I started the top of the lineup by, you know, Starling Marte. Well, oh, now I got to face a powerful Francisco Lindor, and I've got to turn around as well as face a Pete Alonzo. Oh, well, all right, I got through them, but now I face a bunch of guys like Jeff McNeil that gets on base on a frequent basis. There is no easy out in the Mets lineup, and I'm not saying the Yankees have an easy out. Of course, when they played Joey Gallo uh, before trading him, he was easy out. Now you'll argue Aaron Hicks is the easy out for the New York Yankees. But the fact of the matter is the Yankees lineup isn't spread enough for production. And that's the big problem why they're not finding offense here in the second half. Yeah. And my contention about judge is just, if you structure the lineup the way you said, and you have IKF nine or something like that, I just want a situation. If you're a Yankee fan that Aaron Judge is coming up with runners on base. Aaron Judge is having a historic year that we haven't seen from a power hitter since the 1990s. And he, he, he's got to be able to use that to help the team. Solo home runs from Aaron Judge will only get you so far. I know it won them a game against Kansas City last week, but still. When you're going deep into the season and you're going to be playing against teams like the Astros and the Blue Jays who are going to score runs no matter who's on the mound for the Yankees, you need Aaron Judge and Anthony Rizzo to be coming up with runners on base so they can drive in multiple runs if they hit a home run. The Yankees frequently hit home runs. You've got to try to set that up. But I'm going to leave it at that with the baseball and transition to the NFL because Hall of Fame game is tonight. The Jaguars face off with the Las Vegas Raiders. Uh, not sure who we're actually going to see on the field. Of course, first preseason game. Maybe you get a series with the regulars. Maybe we'll see Devontae Adams in, in on a Raiders uniform for the first time. Uh, I, I, would, I, I would doubt it. I yeah. would 
Now, I honestly think you'll highly, or I say I highly doubt you will see any starters in a game here tonight for either team uh, in terms of the quarterback position and, and and the receiving positions. I think it's just way too risky to turn around and, and play, but I had a meaningless game because remember, these guys get four four games, you know, in, in the preseason. And while, yeah, you think it's an extra opportunity, I think this is where it typically is for the Hall of Fame game where you're going to see uh, more and more of your third stringers getting opportunities. The only thing I think, maybe, maybe Trevor Lawrence gets a series because, you know, he's been working with Doug Peterson these last couple of weeks in camp and he's trying to rebound after a very disappointing rookie year. I think maybe we'll see Trevor Lawrence for a series, but regardless, it's exciting to see the NFL back. But let's finish the trilogy of our Giants-Eagles debate because it got a little crazy last episode. Both of us were saying things that were completely inaccurate about the schedules. So now let's actually pull up the schedules and go through them and figure out statistically who's going to be better. And let's start with the team that I think is going to be worse, and that's the New York Giants. Now, Giants Giants start their regular season uh, September the 11th on the road against the Tennessee Titans. I don't see them winning that game. That's a winnable game. I'm not saying they're going to win, but it's a winnable game. All right. I'm putting for me. I'm putting them down as well. One, it's going to be one dimensional with Ryan Tannehill. One dimensional. All you can do is hand off the ball to Derrick Henry and the Giants. The one thing that I've noticed they are really emphasizing in this preseason, focusing on stopping the run. You have to remember, this defense for the Giants was not the problem. It was the offense, and the fact of the matter is, well, yeah, Tennessee has a decent defense. It's not. Baltimore. It's not even Green Bay. I feel like Tennessee's regressed. They haven't made any big moves. They've traded away their pieces. They're stepping down again. My point about the Giants, a lot of what-if teams throughout the season, not as much compared to the Eagles. The Eagles have, in my opinion, 50-50 games, but continue on. All right, so I've got the Giants. Personally, I've got the Giants dropping that first game but I see them winning week two I think they'll beat the Panthers at home I think the Giants defense can give Baker or whoever's at quarterback for Carolina fits week three they're at home on Monday night football against the Cowboys I don't care that the Giants are home I don't care that the I, listen I, my, my argument with this had nothing to do with division games because the fact of the matter is listen the, the division the NFC East what we've proven now over the last four or five seasons in particular on Predictable. I mean, unpredictable. You can't predict the game at all. Listen, the Giants can turn around. They could beat the Cowboys. They could. I'm not saying they're going to, but they could beat the Cowboys. And then they'll turn around the next game and they'll get blown up by 40 points. That's just how unpredictable the NFC East has been practically, which is why you can't look at those games and say, eh, they don't have a chance. And it's for the record, it's not just the NFC East. Every division game, Every team has a chance, unfortunately, because of how unpredictable. I mean, think about it. The Browns, when they went 0-16, almost had chances of beating their own divisional opponents in multiple times that season. All right, so I've got the Giants at 1-2. and two. The Bears, I think this could be a close game, but I think the Giants are better than the Chicago Bears. I've got them at 3-1 three three. at that point. All right, you've got the them at three. I have them losing to the Cowboys. Yeah, you've got them at 3-1. and one. I've got them at 2-2. Two and two. Fifth game, they face Mr. Psychedelic himself, Aaron Rodgers. That's in, be- in London. Can't forget about in London. They, no, I'm not saying they don't have a chance. They're losing Aaron Rodgers, but it's in London. And if Aaron Rodgers plays in London, like he plays in Florida, 
we could have a chance. Could, but that's asking for a lot. And but but also, not again, not to argue on the Giants' side, but I'll argue the contrary on this. Okay, what happens if we get to Week Five and Aaron Rodgers, not himself, but has a receiver injury? What happens if Alan Lazard's hurt? What happens if? You know, one of the young and up-and-coming receivers that he's trying to develop the connection with gets hurt. Aaron Rodgers is a great quarterback. He can make receivers good. Do not get me wrong to that standard. But I, the one thing I'm worried about the Packers, and this has nothing to do with this game just in general, I want to see him go on a Super Bowl run, but I'm so worried about receiver depths. And, and really, overall, their offensive line depth as well as being healthy that I, I just don't know for the big picture for Aaron Rodgers. Of, again, the Giants could potentially come into that game if there's injuries. It, it's, again, it's not who you play. It's what they have when you play them and how they're doing. Fair enough. But let's also not forget what happened last year on Thursday Night Football against the Cardinals. I know the Cardinals collapsed, but the Packers had all their receivers basically hurt on the COVID list, and Aaron Rodgers was still able to power through and win that game against the team who statistically was the best team in the NFC at that point. So uh, in the end, I don't think it really matters. Giants are losing in London to the Packers. So you've got them at three and two. I've got them at two and three. Then they play the Ravens. Now, as long as Lamar Jackson is healthy, I know this game. I've got a loss in that game. I've got a loss. That's that. That's where. But remember, some motivation as well. Defensive coordinator for the New York Giants. That's where he was most previous, uh, previously, and they'll know each other defensively very, very well uh, in that game, which is going to be very interesting. And really, on the end, you know, Dable is very familiar uh, having fits with Baltimore. All right. Now this is where things are going to get feisty here. Okay. So I've got them at two and four at this point. You've got them at three and three. Then they've got this four-game stretch where if they want any chance, they got to win all four of these games. And I don't think they're winning all four of these games. I do think they can beat Jacksonville, though I think it will be closer than people think because Doug Peterson has played well against the Giants before as the coach. And Trevor Lawrence, I think, is going to have a better year. But I think the Giants will beat the Jaguars. So the Giants will move to three and four. I know you're, you think they're going to beat the Jaguars. I, I, that's a win. That's a win. All right. So four and three, three and four. Seattle. I don't trust Drew Locke. I think I think the Giants. I think that's a win as well. I, I I do think that's a win. That team's on a regression, not just because they lost Russell Wilson, but let's be honest. I don't even know who could protect Drew Locke on that team at this point. All right, so you got them at five and three. I got them at four and four. Now here we go. The Giants play the Texans on November thirteenth. I have the Texans because I have a lot of faith in Davis Mills. I liked him this year. He came into a really dysfunctional situation with the Texans, with everything going on in Deshaun Watson, a lack of targets and weapons. And he looked pretty good in the second half of the season and a team that was in a coaching transitional phase. I like Houston as a sneaky team to get seven, eight wins this season. So I think the Giants are due for a letdown here. So I've got them falling to four and five and losing to the Texans. Now, while your point is legitimate, because, again, it's very hard to win four in a row in the NFL, I still have them winning this game. You, you mentioned dysfunctional. There's nothing more dysfunctional than the Houston Texans. And listen, that team, again, not only got worse, obviously, by trading Deshaun Watson. And for the record, if it was a Deshaun Watson-led Houston Texans, I would say absolutely the Giants are losing that game. But the fact of the matter is that Again, they haven't really improved themselves in the receiving core and on the offensive end. And again, Davis Mills looks 
good. He looks like that of the rookie class outside, of course, Matt Jones. He looks like he has the most potential of everyone that went under the radar. But I just don't know if Houston is going to be good enough to even win five, six games this year. All right. So I've got them at four and five. You've got them at six and three. Then they face Dan Campbell and the Detroit Lions, who I still think are going to be kind of bad this year. So I'll give the Giants this win. I'll have them. Sorry, Zoe. I have the Giants winning that one as well. Yeah. I've got them at five and five through 10 games. I'm being nice. Then is when this is going to get fun when they play the NFC East. So I'm at seven and three right now, I think. They're at seven and three. So the Giants start seven and three. They're going to be feeling really good. But then here we go. Jerry World on Thanksgiving. That's going to be that's a lot. ugly. That's a lot. Right. I, I, think, I think we're getting swept by the Cowboys. And I think that's fair. I think the Cowboys are the best team in the NFC East. And that, that there's no way fans are about about that. That's being realistic. Uh, but again, unpredictable division game. Never know. I mean, the Cowboys Thanksgiving wise, historic or you know, history wise against the Giants hasn't done well. But last time the Giants played a Thanksgiving game, I want to say it was what the 1950s, something like that. So the Giants haven't played in Thanksgiving in a very, very long time. All right, seven and four, five and six. The Commanders. Well, I per- we'll get to it. I think they're going to split the series with the Commanders. I think they'll win. They'll win the home game. They'll win the home game on December fourth. So that'll get them to six and six. I assume you have them beating Washington. I have them beating the Commanders. I have them sweeping the Commanders this year. So eight and four, six and six. Then first meeting with the Eagles. Now, of course, I think the Eagles are better than the Giants, Uh, and I don't think Jalen Rieger is going to be in a situation where he has to catch the game-winning touchdown. Okay, so this is is the first meeting for the Giants, home or away? Uh, This one is in East Rutherford. So I have them taking the home game. I have them losing the week 18 game. So So you have them at nine. You have the Giants at nine and four right now. I've got them at six and seven. Then December 18th, they play the Commanders. Now I said this, I think they're going to split it. They always have a bad performance against Washington every year. So I've got them losing this one and dropping six and eight. And you said you have them sweeping the Commanders? Ten and four. Ten all right. Then in Minnesota on New Year's Eve, this is a one o'clock game. So this is not a primetime game. So that means Kirk Cousins is going to play well. So I think the Vikings at this point, I've got the Giants at six and eight. The Vikings are going to have more to play for. So I think they'll be motivated and they'll beat the Giants. This game is also at U.S. Bank Stadium. So I got the Giants dropping a six and nine. I'm going to say this is going to be a loss, but also again, and I mentioned this on Twitter, it, comes down to what do we see for the Minnesota Vikings? Because if they fall flat like they did last season, I don't know if this team's going to last, especially with Kirk Cousins under center. And listen, while Dalvin uh, Dalvin Cook is an absolute superstar, you know, as a running back, the fact of the matter is, is, you know, it's been a little bit flat in Minnesota. And I need to see something motivational-wise at the start of the season to truly believe that this team is going to be something in the NFC North. Because even with Aaron Rodgers losing receivers, I still think they're the team to beat right now without a doubt in that division. All right, so two weeks to go. The Giants face the Indianapolis Colts on New Year's Day. That's their last home game. What do you have? I have this as a win. I have this as a win? And the only reason why is this, is that I truly believe Matt Ryan is a good quarterback. However, again, you get to the late the season portion for the Colts, and it's the question of how is Matt Ryan doing 
in that late portion of the season. And again, I still can't trust the offense fully. Matt Ryan, I can trust. I, I can trust he's going to throw 3,000, 4,000 yards this year, throw 20 something touchdowns. That's not my problem. My problem is the receiving core for the Colts. I don't know if the receiving core for the Colts, even at this point late in the season with injuries and so on, can hold up. And of course, the Giants will have injuries at that point in the season too. But I just don't know if they, compared to the Giants' defense, can can hold up. And I, for the record, I think it's going to be like around a three-point game. It's going to be close, but I have the Giants edging them out of that. You know what? I'll be nice one more time. I think that could be a close game, and maybe the last home game, the Giants will be motivated. They'll give away the medium sodas. So I'll give them the win over Indianapolis. I heard it's going to be a large this year. It's going to be a large. All right. So I've got them at seven and nine. You've got them at 11 and five. Then the big showdown in Philly last week of the season. How do you have that one? And I said, I said, so this is where I said they were splitting and I had them losing in, in week 18. Okay. So you have the Giants finishing at 11 and six. You have a team quarterbacked by Daniel Jones of Duke University finishing 11 and six. And I've got them at seven and 10. So our Zoom is about to run out, so I'm going to start a new one, and then we're going to go through the Eagles schedule, so stay with us. Of course, if you're on Spotify, go listen to part two now. That's where we'll be breaking down the Eagles schedule, but uh, this is Sports Speak. We'll be back in just a moment.